Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is the life of John Marshall, episode 16, XYZ, part 2. This is also American Biography's one-year birthday spectacular. It's our potiversary, and joining me today to celebrate is the host of When Diplomacy Fails and PhD candidate, hashtag Zach to Cambridge, the one, the only, Zach Twomley. Zach, welcome to American Biography, and thanks for coming by to class up the place. Yay, thanks for having me, and happy birthday, American Biography. Ah. <laughs> well, we're very happy to have you. And uh, just as a reminder to the listeners, uh, last episode, uh, we discussed the frankly ridiculous state of affairs between the three-person American diplomatic mission to Paris over the winter of 1797 to 1798 of which Marshall was a part, and so was the famous French foreign minister, Talleyrand. On this show, I endeavor to try to talk about history through the lens of the podcast subject. Uh, but this is a really crowded hour in the history of the world surrounding the French Revolution, and to say that there's a lot happening internationally and domestically in the United States over the course of the last several episodes I've covered is really an understatement. Uh, so what I was hoping to do today, with Zach's expert help, was to endeavor to fill in some of those gaps in what's been happening in the wider world, and the events that are shaping the context in which John Marshall's life and career is unfolding. So, I guess right now to start with, when we look at, you know, what happened in my last episode in the XYZ affair, in the diplomatic mission to Paris... I was wondering, Zach, if you would be able to, to walk us through a little bit what was going on. It was obviously in the midst of the wars of the First Coalition. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe give us some background uh, about what's going on there and how is it affecting France? Okay, well, I think we'll come back to this later, but the general trend in the way that the French behave, I think they get more and more kind of 
haughty, I suppose is the right term, as their uh, successes in, in the War of the First Coalition get better and better. I mean, the the War of the First Coalition lasts from about 1792 to about 1797 or so, because that's after that point, after about October 1797, the French and the British are pretty much just at each other's throats alone until the uh, peace breaks down and then we're back to the second and third coalitions, etc., etc. So kind of the general trend, this will probably sound familiar to most people, but it's good to kind of recap anyway and put the whole XYZ affair in context. The The French uh, Republic initially suffer a great series of defeats and they get pushed very far back in the first few months of 1792 and 3. And it's not until April and August 1793 that two really important things happen. The first of these in April, the Committee of Public Safety is created in April 1793 and that basically it kind of it's it's the first really concrete kind of system of government that is really set up in France at the time insofar as it actually it actually helps the French administration through its various iterations actually Hand, like deal with some kind of power and their first real act in do, in using this kind of and wielding this kind of power is to issue the order of levee en masse which basically means that every male from 18 to 25 though practically they roped in people much older than that was basically a soldier from this point on and this while it might sound not too revolutionary now was incredibly revolutionary in that time and as a result you had armies that were far far stronger and far larger in numbers than anyone elsewhere in Europe was used to seeing and it helped France really achieve a huge number of successes and pretty much advance further than France had ever reached even in the times of Louis XIV or before that. So really this is what's called I think this is why French people see this time today as really the glory era of France, because within the space of a few years, by the end of what this is, by the end of this, the first uh, coalition war, uh, France had basically marched its armies all around Europe and had a, achieved a great series of successes in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, in Italy and in Austria, of course, as well. Um, they'd achieved such successes that their original enemies of the Dutch, the Austrians, the Prussians had all been defeated militarily and convincingly and France now possessed significant territories and had created incredibly like diverse satellite states in northern Italy, in the Netherlands, which was now the Batavian Republic. Um, Austria had ceded the Austrian Netherlands to them, so they basically owned all of Belgium now. And the Swiss were also roped into the field as well. So you had what's basically this ring of security around the French. And to the south was the Spanish, but the Spanish, as of yet, weren't as involved in the whole issue as the rest of Europe was and Britain. But I'm sure that'll come up later on. Anyway, the... um the whole uh, the whole way the war kind of plays into our story of the XYZ affair is by the time the US decides to send its kind of commission over in early 1890 in early 1797 I'm going to make that mistake a lot cuz I'm talking about the 1800s so much in my own podcast and um, by the time by the time the US decides to send its own kind of commission over to sort of make itself felt and sort of 
ease some of the problems that the US and France are going through at this point. By the time it makes the decision to do that, France has not yet achieved the full extent of its victories. The peace treaty of Campo Formio, which would basically kind of be the cherry on top of the French successes, which would be the the Austrian handing over of the Austrian Netherlands and France pretty much being supreme in Europe apart from Britain, that had not that would not happen until October and as we know from Thomas's episode last time, uh, the US and the the French were kind of dealing with each other before that. So I think you're you're bound to notice a, a pretty distinct change in tone once the French begin to realize. Hold on a minute, we're kind of we're doing pretty well for ourselves here. Oh, definitely. They um, I think it was X, but it could have been Y. Literally through that in the delegates face they they showed up to rattle the saber basically and say you guys have been dragging your feet it's time to shape up because we've just defeated austria well yeah. there was obviously very very high confidence that they would be able to deal with britain now isolated mm-hmm. um in short order and they were confident in basically threatening the united states yeah to yeah. comply now like like the batavian republic like some mm-hmm. satellite republic that they were dealing with in Europe. Yeah, I, I, I would like to ask a question about that. Do you think, I mean, we know at this stage the United States is a very young nation. Do you think that in French eyes, if you're looking at this from the French perspective, do you think that that certainly made the French see the United States in a certain way that maybe they thought even before the Treaty of Campo Formio had been, had been signed in October uh, 1797 and before the French thought then that they were militarily supreme do you think before then that kind of tone of arrogance that was within the French do you think that came from dealing with a country like the United States that they saw maybe as culturally inferior because of its youth oh I think absolutely you know I think they had already had a brief meeting with Talleyrand uh, when they arrived um, earlier in 1797 and had met X and Y already before Campo Formio, um, and they were already being treated rather shabbily and being extorted for deucers to line Talleyrand and the directory's pockets. Uh, I sure. think I think Talleyrand was certainly savvy enough to know that the United States, where he'd lived for several years, um, you know, while avoiding the terror didn't pose a threat to France. Uh, we really didn't have much in the way of a navy at all. And he, I think, was fairly confident that domestically the United States was divided and that there was a, a very strong, uh, quote, French party, end quote, um, in the United States that would derail any real attempts um, you know, to, to effectively try to fight France if it came down to it. And I, I think that goes back quite a ways, actually, to um, the Washington administration. Right. Um, you know, back to 1793, uh, really, when Washington sees that the United States is being caught in, in between the wars of the French Revolution, between Britain and France, particularly, you know, on the high seas of the Atlantic, and you know, declares neutrality. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that that gets a lot of domestic pushback. Um, you know, there's, he's, his, his popularity is able to sustain, uh, you know, through his declaration of neutrality. But when he has to send John Jay to Britain to negotiate the 
Jay Treaty, uh, he does come under heavy and increasingly heavy fire uh, in the Republican press. Jefferson doesn't resign directly because of the Jay Treaty, but he does resign before it's negotiated. And his replacement is uh, another Virginian who I've talked about, um, Edmund Randolph, who ends up resigning while the treaty's in Washington's hands, basically, <laughs> because it's discovered that he's been he's been writing rather indiscreet letters to uh, the French minister, Joseph Fossett, declaring that the Federalist Party is going to try to take over, you know, the Republic and end the American Republic. And, of course, the British intercept one of his letters, to uh, one of actually Fossé's, and I cannot pronounce French names for the life of me, so I apologize to anyone who's <laughs> me listening. Me neither. <laughs> um, and turn it over to the United States, because that's, that's what Britain does. And Washington confronts him with his letters, and, and Randolph resigns. And uh, that's significant because that actually marks a turn in the Washington administration, where he'd previously been or tried to be above politics, he begins to definitely align less with the Jeffersonian Republicans and much more with the Hamiltonian Federalists at this right. point. And I think that that turn in the government drives a, a lot more uh, domestically than is always given credit for because that's going to spill over into the Adams administration where Adams keeps Washington's cabinet almost mm -hmm. in its entirety. Right. So what another uh, another unscripted exclusive question I have to ask you uh, about the Jay Treaty in particular. Do you think that that was a sensible kind of move in a case where Britain and the United States obviously had fought before, and since this is before the War of 1812, they will fight again. So did it initially surprise you before you knew about this? And maybe some of our other listeners might be able to relate to this as well, to discover that before the War of 1812 and a little bit after the War of Independence, the British and Americans were actually trying to sort out some of their issues, and actually it looked like America might drift into a war with its former friend France. Did that surprise you? Uh, it was def It didn't surprise me because I'm a man of learning and scholarship. <laughs> Very patronizing. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh, I guess actually it's it it's not surprising if you think about it because based on the Treaty of Paris, uh, 1783, um, Britain had refused to comply with a lot of the terms. It hadn't abandoned the western forts that it, in the Ohio River Valley that it had promised to. Ostensibly, this had to deal with the large amount of outstanding debt uh, United States citizens owed British bankers and citizens. Right. Um, but Britain just didn't respect the United States. And to some extent, why should it worry about the United States? Just, just as we said, Talleyrand didn't because the United States didn't have an effective navy. Yeah. Um, you know, Britain wasn't going to reinvade the United States at this point, mm -hmm. but it didn't have to. It had the greatest navy in the world. It could do whatever it wanted to the United States on the high seas, and, and it did. Um, you mentioned the War of 1812. One of the issues is going to be impressment of American sailors. Well, that's happening now. You know, that, that's happening here in the late, the late 1790s. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that's one of the, uh, the, the issues on the table. Um, that, it, it dies down, but it doesn't go away uh, entirely. So 
was it was the Jay Treaty necessary? It was necessary because one of the few things after the Revolutionary War that Americans could use to identify what it was to be an American is being against the British. Yeah. You know, they they almost define themselves negatively. It's their okay. animosity to the British, their old enemy. Um so the population in the United States generally is very supportive of the French. And it's only the higher level view in the Washington administration that can really objectively look at this and say, we can't do this. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah. One of the favorite hobby horses of the Republicans in international diplomacy is this belief that, you know, Americans can essentially boycott anything going on in Europe economically. And, and Europe is so dependent <laughs> on American yeah. goods that we can change behaviors. Um, this is particularly strong with Jefferson. And when you see later when these issues persist into his administration, he'll have his embargo, his completely failed embargo, where he says, all right, we're just not trading with Britain or France. Hmm. And that doesn't work out so hot because they don't need the United States as much as the Republicans think they do. So the Republicans are viewing this situation through highly ideological eyes, where Washington is being a bit more of a pragmatist yeah. and saying, yeah, well, not only do we need neutrality, and he, he proclaims neutrality, but we need to get on better terms with Britain because most of our trade at this point is with Britain. Anything we have going on with France, France is pretty much blockaded. So they're not going to be a, a great trading partner from this point. You know, we're not going to expressly help anybody. Yeah. But we definitely have to. We're in a position where France couldn't help us if they wanted to on the high seas. Yeah. So basically what the Jay Treaty does, it, it's you could call it a capitulation to the British. We basically had to accept what the British said neutral rights were. Right. You know, we we weren't calling the tune. We were dead set on staying out of it, and part of staying out of it was accepting that we had to give the British uh, most favorable nation trading status, right. which did seem to fly in the face of our 1788 commitment to the French. But at the same time, we could say, well, that treaty wasn't with the French Republic. That was with a different government. That's true. Yeah, that's a... Handy technicality there. Another thing to consider as well is just even the fact alone that when the Jay Treaty was signed, France was not having a very good time of things in the European continent. I mean, as I opened the monologue, I opened with there the fact that France was basically losing all on all fronts, and it had been pushed back in in as many theaters as one could be pushed back in, and it did not look very good for Paris. So. To, to say maybe you could even argue in one sense, like you, you alluded to the fact even that France was essentially blockaded at this stage. So why would uh, what, like why would the Americans think that an equivalent of the Jay Treaty with France was a good idea? I mean, why not negotiate with the winning power or at least the power that looked the strongest at the moment? So, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it does make sense. I I think so definitely. It's an example of that uh, you know clear-eyed American diplomacy. <laughs> yeah. Um but uh I think in this case it was. It was it was a very pragmatic view of the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh and and an evaluation of what the interests of the United States were. Mhm. Yeah. And and really that that's what an elected official is tasked with doing. Sure. Like he, he's Washington's not the president of 
you know, uh, Western diplomatic relations. He was the president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, well, continuing on with that trend, when... Americans finally land in in France in seventeen in early seventeen ninety seven to kind of negotiate a, a better a better deal with the French, really, I suppose you could say, and ease the tensions that are surrounding the the French seizure of American ships and the of course the American desire to remain neutral as as much as is possible. Um, you alluded to the fact that in your podcast episode before this one that. The fact that France was kind of unstable might have set these U.S. delegates on edge. Do you think that there was a bit of a culture shock when they arrived? I think there was a major culture shock when they arrived. I I don't think that they expected to be treated so shabbily. Yeah. I don't think they expected, and I think um, Pickney even says in, in a quote that I put in my last episode, is like, we didn't expect this. We had no idea you guys were going to ask us for money, to which I think X replies, any American in Paris could have told you this, <laughs> which I thought was was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have to, to wonder a, a bit, because as I, I look at this, and this is really a low point, I think, for Thomas Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Republicans, James Monroe had been the uh, you know ambassador in, stationed in Paris, and he had been recalled in 1796 for basically bad-mouthing the Jay Treaty, um, huh. which was a standard party line, essentially, yeah. for, for Republicans both domestically and apparently abroad. So I think Jefferson bears a lot of responsibility for setting up a situation where there is this expectation that the Federalists were going to be toppled, and if the French government just played for time essentially basically with jefferson's elevation mm-hmm. which he did he was held up for president in, in 1796 um he didn't win john adams did but if they held out and the republicans came to power they were going to get a sweetheart deal do you think that the do you think that the deal that 
the French expected revolved around the antagonism that the Republicans felt towards Britain, or do you think it was a a different a different motive maybe that they were expecting? I think it was evolving in the French mind. Um, you know, at the outset, I think they certainly thought a Jefferson administration would would ally the United States with with French against Britain. Yeah. Um, after Campo Formio, I kind of get the feeling that it went from alliance to bringing the United States within the domination of the French sphere. Yeah, it does kind of seem it does kind of seem that way, all right, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely had a flavor uh, that that flavor to mm. me when when I'm reading uh, about it. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little, change tax a little bit and just talk a, a bit about uh, the uh, the practice that so shocked the Americans, and we can talk a bit about this how this played into the whole culture shock of uh, the French kind of practice of. Do soar or ba- basically uh, accepting bribes for means of uh, lubricating the practice of diplomacy. Yeah, I, I would definitely because um, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've read a bit about Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. and I don't see this mm-hmm. uh, being a factor uh, when he's over there um, in the 1780s. Um, maybe that maybe that's because he's a rock star, and maybe his currency is a celebrity. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you have any insight into into what this is all about, please. Well, I'll, I'll give my best, but from what I've kind of taken from it, a lot of it has to do with simple the simple facts on the ground. It was by no means a kind of ideological shift that, oh, anyone who wants to do diplomacy has to pay us money. It was more the case of necessity that the French, after fighting a series of wars against the great powers in Europe at the time, were badly, badly in need of money. And they believed that America, having been outside of this war, would come to possess, I suppose, an advantageous economic position, at least insofar as they'd be able to provide a certain level of funds that the French would otherwise not be able to have access to. And perhaps this comes, like, perhaps this makes sense if we think about it in terms of the kind of French arrogance, I suppose you could call it, that maybe the French thought they were entitled to ask for bribes and ask for uh, money to kind of grease the wheels. I mean, it was by no means a brand new invention. I'm sure before even recorded times, countries had have to buy their way, buy their way into kind of the diplomatic circles. But I think the reason why it stuck in the Americans' cross so much is because of the condescending way that the French did it. Not even the fact that they did it, because that was, that was obviously striking in itself for the Americans. But the fact that they did it with such a sense of like uh, we 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 want you want to talk to us and we need money so you will give us money and then we will talk to you there didn't seem to be a middle ground and i think that's really what kind of what kind of drove the americans so crazy and the fact that the french didn't seem to it didn't they didn't really seem to understand that this would offend anyone like really surprises me but yeah, I think the Americans' perspective was was certainly, hey, we came here to discuss things that we thought were problems for both of us. Yeah, that both of us would equally have an interest in resolving and resolving quickly, because you have your own problems, France. You know why? Why have anything additional with us? I thought we were cool. <laughs> Essentially, they were coming here to try to clear up what they thought were misunderstandings. Yeah. And Talleyrand badly misjudged the situation. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. I mean, we were talking a little bit beforehand about uh, when before we started doing this episode how um how basically the Americans thought maybe they were dealing with the same France that they had dealt with during the War of Independence. I mean, the court of Louis Louis the 16th. Yeah, Louis the 16th was by no means like saintly, but it was certainly better organized than the kind of uh turmoil that they now had to deal with. And sure, the revolution and the the uh, age of terror was was over, but this is the system it had left behind pretty much depended on bribes and and money and less savory means to kind of keep going. I mean, the, the sham of democracy, as as we'll discover, didn't last very long in this kind of atmosphere. And I think when the Americans went into France expecting to kind of have the same organized, respectable, honorable French system, they were rudely, rudely interrupted by by the shock, really, that everything had kind of gone down the toilet. And the only way to advance things in France, if you're an outsider, at least, is to use money. And it might sound obvious to us, but I suppose when the Americans were traveling there, they perhaps didn't anticipate that things could have gotten so bad or that, on the other hand, things had become so different to what they had used to be. Yeah, I think you alluded to it earlier a little bit. Um, You know, while they're there, right before they come to Paris, when they're kind of cooling their heels in the Netherlands, you know, the the coup of 18 Fructidor occurs, and and they learn of that. And, um, you know, that's definitely an authoritarian lurch um, a very much anti-democratic lurch for, you know, the French Republic. Mm. Um, and I think that certainly sets the tone for later coups. Mm. You know, this introduces Bonaparte, you know, to the higher levels of uh, intrigue, you know, within in the government. But um, certainly that couldn't have been a settling thing for the Americans. No, not at all. Um, but I don't think I don't think it prepared them at all for their reception. No. <laughs> As I said earlier, Talleyrand definitely misplayed his hand because yeah. he thought that there was this French party in the United States that was going to smooth everything over. And when Marshall's dispatches get back to the United States in 1798 and Adams announces that this this mission failed. There's actually a a huge Republican backlash blaming it on Adams. Yeah, and, I thought that and, was hilarious. And yeah. I think it's fantastic that Adams didn't release the dispatches right away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know Jefferson is writing to all his his you know Republican followers. You know demand this. This is clearly a cover up. So they all yeah. demand it in, in, in righteous indignation. <laughs> and then when it comes out, they're absolutely embarrassed. Yeah. And for the next two years, the Federalists just dominate the federal elections, um, even yeah. in the South. And mm. it, it takes it puts them on a, a very it puts them on a very different footing than they've been previously. Suddenly money's available for armies. I think the the phrase um millions for defense, but not a penny for tribute gets thrown out there in the u.s congress um armies <laughs> yeah. are raised frigates are um authorized mm. uh to be built cutters that the treasury department owns are outfitted um for privateer warfare wow and uh you know the u.s and the french slowly fall into the quasi war oh yes which is <laughs> which is one of the which I guess would have been completely unthinkable five years earlier. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, they, 
they were having undeclared naval warfare with the mm-hmm. French in the yeah. Caribbean on the high seas. It's such a dramatic change, isn't it? Even down, I thought that it was very symbolic, even down to the fact that in July 1798, the the old Treaty of Alliance that really had kind of brought France and America so close together during the War of Independence, that was repudiated. Officially then, repudiated. Yeah. yeah. And then two days later, then you had an approval given for attacks uh, on French ships by US ships, basically. I mean, that's crazy, really. It's a serious escalation of affairs. Absolutely. And and Washington is brought out of retirement again to be the symbolic head of an army that the United States is raising and outfitting, really being run by Hamilton, um, who is by this point out of government and increasingly falling apart personally. And, you know, you could argue his judgment has just left him uh, yeah. generally at this point in his career. But it feeds into more infighting because the Federalists increasingly lose their head, and it's all and all this power is going to their head. Delusions of grandeur, I guess you could call it. Yeah. But obviously, this this culminates with the Alien and Sedition Acts. I saw that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> domestically, and and I I've read indications that Adams wasn't necessarily for them. Mm-hmm. But he certainly didn't veto them. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess just a, a quick rundown. Basically, these laws are violations of the First Amendment. The Sedition Act basically says newspapers can't criticize elected officials unfairly. Yeah. What does that mean? You can't. You can use that language to <laughs> arrest and, and persecute whoever you want to, whenever you want to. And it's definitely used against Republican newspapers. People like Benjamin Franklin Bach, who is the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, has a newspaper sure. in Philadelphia. Um, and James Callender, who you know was at one point personally employed by Thomas Jefferson to attack the Washington administration. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's definitely the arrests are pointed. And the, um, the Alien Act, well, the Alien Enemies Act, is also a very pointed law. Obviously, it comes from a paranoid place where the French Revolution is seen as this international conspiracy. And, you know, immigrants coming to the United States generally line up with uh, sympathy for the Republicans and the French yeah. and the goals of the French Revolution. It was never fully implemented, but the idea that it could be, you know, really is a shock to the public conscious. And when taken together... This is this is taking it a step too far, and this is how the Federalists in general will begin their decline as a party to where in 12 years, 14 years, they're gone. Yeah, it's they're, they're just gone. Dramatic, like really drastic. The fact that the politics could change so much on the ground in America. I mean, even I, I'd like to kind of maybe bravely pose this question do you think that there could be a comparison drawn between the the suggestions and, and and aliens act you mentioned there insofar as it limited american freedoms and the the one the coup of the 18 fruit court fruit kit however it's fruit, fruit yeah that one <laughs> the do you think a comparison could be drawn between the two of those? And you said that the American equivalent came from a kind of paranoid place. I mean, certainly 
the French reasons for doing so in their coup, it was effectively to limit the progress and basically exile the monarchist parties within the Council of 500. And the directory was very much for this. And it really did lead down the road to a kind of despotic kind of aura existing or hanging over the the French Republic that really enabled Napoleon, I think, to move in there in 1899 or 1799, rather. I, I think that's a stretch. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you when you compare the actual facts of the 18 Fructidor and, and the passage of uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts, um, when you look at it, um, so 18 Fructidor basically removes two of the five members of the directory who are not in line with the other three and cancels the results of elections. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is saying that if we don't like what you're printing, we're mm-hmm. going to arrest you. Yeah. You know, which isn't by any means good, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's on the same level. And also when it's about trying to, I guess, round up what the government would see as undesirables mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. removing people who are could be seen as uh, fomenters of insurrection or trouble. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. I think you get into uh, the prejudices of the people enforcing the law there, and that's problematic. But I, I don't see it necessarily as a federalist coup attempt. Okay. And, you know, these laws were passed with sunset clauses. I don't know if that really matters. Because basically when Jefferson is elected in 1800, he just lets them expire. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I think it was – it seemed to be more tailored to a specific situation. Yeah. I think the Federalists, when they passed it, also had an eye towards if we lose the election, we don't want this being put on us. So let's limit it in time um, in case we lose in 1800. Right. And, I, and that's certainly what, what happened. Yeah. I definitely – I agree that obviously the French coup was far more severe. I mean, you couldn't even call the American equivalent a coup. But I think it's interesting even saying that, that on two different sides of the world, really, you had circumstances which led their governments to do quite extreme things. Um, and certainly in the French case, they had dramatic implications for the future of the French Republic and i think it's it's really interesting to kind of even when the even when the, as as you see as you quite absolutely demonstrated there the two circumstances are very different but i think it's fun sometimes to compare things because it helps you kind of it helps you kind of pick out things and uh, pick out more kind of issues that you wouldn't necessarily see if you were just looking at the american example say by itself i mean for the in the in in terms of like motivations say for the for the american side uh, why did they feel at that very moment that it was necessary to limit people's like freedoms of speech or say do the kind of things that they did? I mean, surely that you couldn't argue they were under the kind of threats that France believed it was under. Um, I think there was a paranoia that that there was going to be a pro-French uprising. I also think it wasn't clear to Americans that Britain would hold out, and you know the way that the French had mopped up Europe, um, you know, could conceivably be construed that Britain's going to fall and then France is coming here. Mm. Um, you know, so I think they had imperfect, an imperfect view of the situation that high insights given us. And mm. I also think there was a bit about hoping to win the next election behind the passage of those laws. Sure. But you had mentioned, uh, when it came to the coup of 18 Fructidor, mm-hmm. that, 
it had real significant consequences for the future of France and really the future of Europe. But what is the similarity that I'll allow between the Alien and Sedition Acts and the Coup of 18 Fructidor is it resulted in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions uh, being drawn up by um, Jefferson and Madison, though they were private citizens. What this introduces, have you, have you, are you familiar with these? Not especially, no, if I'm honest. (laughs) So what what these introduce into the American dialogue um, in two separate arguments that are endorsed by state legislatures is the idea that the states are arbiters of what is constitutional and that the state can effectively nullify a federal law that it finds unconstitutional. Obviously, this podcast's subject, John Marshall, will expressly reject that in rulings, but (laughs) it puts a seed out there that'll resurface in the United States periodically and becomes the basis for secession. The Hartford Convention in New England will, will use them during the War of 1812 to talk about seceding from the Union. Uh, South Carolina in the 1830s will protest the tariff of abominations passed by the federal government and threaten to nullify that law, which will result in President Jackson threatening to march an army down there and hang every damned secessionist. Um, (laughs) And obviously that doesn't culminate in anything. But then ultimately this this thinking is again present in 1860, when the United States actually has states secede from the Union and results in the Civil War. So intellectually, you could draw a line back to the Alien and Sedition Acts and the Republican reaction to them as laying the ideological foundations for the United States Civil War. Wow, that's... Yeah, I never thought... I mean, I was actually planning to ask... uh... Do you think there are any major implications for the kind of sedition acts or these kind of events, even at this earliest stage? And yes, I touched on the the uh, the coup there as having dramatic ones in France, but even just to think that the civil war history itself goes so far back. I mean, wow, that's pretty profound, there, Tom Daly. Good job. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> How about we uh, move on to just the fact that the Americans were so resistant to really kind of play into the French demands for money. And do you think that that fact alone can be blamed on it failing? Or do you think that the XYZ affair may not have resulted in the quasi-war that it did had the Americans been more willing to play a monetary ball, if you will? I think that's a really complicated question. Um, <laughs> you know, the United States uh, at this point is a little prudish, I want to say. Hmm. Um, and this might be some of the puritanical you know, origins of it. But civic virtue and, and, and the idea of civic virtue is, is a very powerful thing in particularly the early United States. So I don't think they really had the option to accept the French demands. You know, I I think they were very cognizant that it would be a dishonor to them personally and to the honor of the United States. Yeah. Because even when you look at the War of 1812, Mm -hmm. that is predicated by the slights to American honor Mm -hmm. that's transpiring uh, on the high seas. And it's pushed by Westerners. People like Henry Clay, who were just elected to Congress, pushes that. The young Warhawks. Not the people 
who live in Massachusetts on the coast who probably have relatives being uh you know impressed um it's yeah. that it's that young western influx of of new members to congress that mm. will force madison's hand to declare war yeah so i i think americans were were too conscious of questions of honor to ever realistically have given in mm-hmm. to those types of what they would see as corruptions mm-hmm. by telling sure. men. i i liked what you said there about the the idea of national honor coming into it and this plays very conveniently into my dissertation and everything else about national honor I've talked about before. But with even when the worst details of the affair hadn't yet become known in, in the fact that the dispatches hadn't yet been released, there were still members in, in the cabinet in the United States that were calling for war. I think the attorney general and the secretary of state for war actually were not not agitating i suppose is the wrong word but they were certainly of the opinion that the french offenses against the united states were such that they could be construed as offensive enough really to justify war i mean obviously there was too much division in the cabinet at that stage to kind of go towards a war but it's still interesting to observe i think so and i'll take it a step further i think um president adams deserves an incredible amount of credit for uh the political bravery not to get into a war yeah uh, over this issue and it cost him a second election him choosing to send additional delegates after the xyz affair and to hold out until the last minute for peace and not to get into a war that he also believed would be disastrous for the united states um you know is an incredible feat of courage and it's because he chose to send that second delegation uh instead of pursuing the easier path of war Absolutely. That, you know, the Convention of 1800 was able to happen um, once the French had undergone another change of government, um, which Zach detailed in great depth in the Agora Podcast Network's Washington v. Bonaparte episode, <laughs> where he, in detail, goes over the coup of 18 Brumaire. Hmm. So I encourage you to check that out if you want to know more about that change. <laughs> handy plug. <laughs> yes, very handy. Um But anyway, that allows for the Convention of 1800 to take place and the Treaty of Mortefontaine. Good job. Yeah, Yeah, good. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Morefontaine. I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce. I just I just so dire at French pronunciation. Um, but yeah, the what I prefer to call the Convention of 1800 because then I don't have to pronounce the actual name of the treaty. Mm -hmm. Um, but I agree. I mean, had John Adams not really gone that direction, imagine. And we're entering Jordan Harbor territory, as I like to call it now, because this would be best reserved for the Twilight Histories podcast, all this speculation. But it's fun to think how American history would have gone had John Adams not elected to try diplomacy one more time. And had he really just elected to let it fail and really joined, if you like, another coalition against France. Yeah. So would you say that this is an example of diplomacy not failing? I would say so. Yeah. But I mean... Is the quasi-war really a success? I I mean, it is in the fact that it wasn't a genuine open war. I mean, I suppose you could call it a kind of draw for diplomacy, if that's even allowed, insofar as a quasi-war resulted, but a war-war did not result, if that makes sense. It does. Another point I'd like to make about the Convention of 1800, and this might seem a little bit tenuous, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning even just for kind of, like, analysis sake uh the fact that once the convention of 1800 happened it kind of 
nullified peacefully, that is, the Treaty of Alliance that France and America had had. Um, once that had happened, there was no there was no real sense about how American history was going to go. But we know now that this this space of time now, there'll be 150 years before America has a proper Treaty of Alliance with any country. And that will take the form in the Second World War with the allies of Great Britain and the Soviet Union. So I think it's a really interesting, uh, a really interesting observation to make that even at this early stage, I suppose you couldn't say that the rest of American history is being established, but certainly the history of America and foreign policy with respect to isolationism and the Monroe Doctrine and that kind of thing, it's certainly set on a certain path by the fact that it ends its foreign ties, essentially, at least the more concrete ones, and American diplomats are kind of happy to, while they continue the representation abroad, they're happy to continue without any real complete ties to the countries that they are actually representing America in. Any thoughts on that, Tom? I think that's that's a pretty astute observation, and it certainly fits in with the pattern um, you know, that Washington put forth in the uh, Neutrality Proclamation um, through his uh, exhortions in his farewell address uh, about uh, the dangers of entangling alliances. Um, that that does go, as you point out, through the Monroe Doctrine, um, even through the United States Senate's refusal to ratify the Treaty of Versailles mm. in uh, World War One, yeah. and choosing not to be part of the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think all that fits, you know, pretty neatly within a, an arc that that this example, you know, demonstrates. Mm-hmm. So to those people that may not know of the XYZ affair and may claim to know or at least uh, believe that they know a good deal about American foreign policy as a history, what what would you say to them? Would you say XYZ is a vital ingredient in American foreign policy? I would say that it certainly deserves more of a discussion yeah. than the literal two lines I got in my high school textbook <laughs> about an American delegation not naming future Chief Justice John Marshall as a member mentioning the letters X, Y, and Z and then moving on. <laughs> it certainly deserves more attention than that. Yeah, But I think any serious student of the United States history needs to be more aware of it and where it fits in the continuum mm. of that history. I- um, and, and the implications that it has. Is there any parts of it particularly that really, well, I suppose number one, that you find the most interesting if you're able to round it down that much, and number two, that most kind of, I suppose, grinded your gears the most? <laughs> I think for both, the real thing that I, I took away from it was just how people could get so caught up in a moment that Clearly, mutually beneficial actions could be put to the side. Yeah. Like, it it was so in the interests of the United States and so in the interests of Directory France to come to a quick and easy and neat solution that uh, it really boggles the mind that it devolved in the way that it did. Mm. Um, You know, it's rather shocking to the conscience even today uh, for me. And, you know... uh, I'm sure there's a lesson there if I wanted to be moralizing uh, <laughs> that could be extrapolated, but... I think certainly all throughout history, the idea that personal relationships get in the way of proper diplomacy 
and within those personal relationships the idea of egos and and one's own national interest i suppose can often be put above the greater good that's very well put and i think with that <laughs> mr zach twomley i would like to thank you for help making american biographies one year anniversary so special oh and for joining us well i would like to thank you very much for having me and having just celebrated your your first birthday with much alcohol and lots of cake i would like to wish you the very best and many more happy years into the future oh well thank you very much zach now zach i know you're a humble guy and don't really like doing plugs but would you you know, maybe want to let my listeners know a little bit about your show in case they don't well you know i was thinking of of not doing any of these plugs but i suppose since you've uh, pressed me into doing them just as Americans were once pressed into British ships, I will do my very best to plug my show as best as I can. Uh, so, as as most listeners of When Diplomacy Fails will know, the best way to help When Diplomacy Fails is through BFIT, so blog, email, Facebook, iTunes, and telling people. I'd especially like to plug the blog, because I'm going to Cambridge, whether people like it or not, and I do need a lot of money for that, so... If anyone has any spare books in their pocket they'd like to send my way, I would really, really appreciate it. And I promise to send you a super nice email afterwards thanking you. So if you go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, click on the glorious donate button in the right corner and make me very happy. Thank you very much. Very good. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening today. And I hope you enjoyed this more informal than usual celebratory episode. And I hope you'll remember to check out AmericanBiography.webs.com for updates on the show. And follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. And if you have any questions or concerns, as always, please shoot me an email at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs> Very good. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.